we'd asked him beforehand, we said, have you had a run on it since you raced it, you know, all those years ago? And he said, no. I said, have you tested it? He said, no, no, I'm not going to test it. I'm just going to get on it. And he got on it. And obviously the rest is history. You know, I was standing beside Valentino looking at his face and, and he just couldn't believe what Kenny was, was, was doing on that, on that 750 Yamaha. Episode 92, Tank Slapping Podcast. We're going to call this the Rodney Ferris episode, Hot Rod. Definitely miss seeing that guy ride. One of the most exciting riders on the circuit for so long. Really good friend of my dad's. And yeah, I heard a lot of stories growing up in Pennsylvania about Rodney Ferris, local Maryland guy, and just phenomenal rider. So yeah, huge shout out to uh, Rodney, man. We, we definitely miss him. Good show for today. We got Jeremy McWilliams coming on the podcast. Uh, for the younger generation, they probably know Jeremy as the guy that won the bagger race in Daytona, the older, the older guy that won the bagger race. But this dude is a living legend. He's done so many cool things all the way from, you know, Grand Prix racer, Grand Prix winner. He won a 250cc Grand Prix race, MotoGP. Um, he's rode so many different bikes and so many different series. Uh, he's still going strong. I don't know his exact age. I think he's in his 50s. He's like 56 or something, 55. Don't quote me on that, but we'll talk with Jeremy. Um, man, just I'm so excited to learn about him. He's from Belfast. He's born in Ireland. He's, you know, he's overseas mate. He's he's uh that kind of energy. So I'm always excited to talk to those overseas riders and get their just thoughts and opinions on, you know, racing in America and what it's like overseas and just the different eras that he's competed in, you know, racing against guys, you know, Valentino Rossi all the way up to, you know, Tyler Hare in the bagger class, Frankie Garcia. So yeah, we're I'm excited to chat with him. We'll get him on here in a bit. Want to make sure we chat out our sponsors and make the show happen. Mission Foods, really stoked to have them on board supporting our podcast. I'm a huge fan of Mission Foods products. They do so much for the industry. And uh, they really keep our podcast going. They're a newer sponsor, but man, without them, not sure how, how how we would make this make this show happen and keep improving like we're like we're doing. So huge shout out to Mission Foods. If you can go to your local store, order online, grab some products, and support those who support us. Bell Power Sports. Check out bellhelmets.com to view their full line of products. I wear the Race Star Flex. The quality and safety is unmatched. And like we say every show, if you start tank slapping, you want to be protected by Bell. Yamaha Motorsports and Yamaha Racing. Check out their website at yamahamotorsports.com. Motorcycle, ATV, side-by-side, snowmobile, and power products. Yamaha revs your heart. Indian Motorcycle. Since 1901, Indian Motorcycle has been the choice of riders who make their own rules. Indian Motorcycle is doing so much for the sport. Uh, Flat Track, Moto America, Hooligan Racing. We're really excited to have them on board our podcast. Really, really exciting and cool brand. And um, yeah, they're doing a lot of really cool things. So thanks again to Indian Motorcycle. Moto America, Circuit of the Americas was this past weekend. Really, really awesome racing. They had the Superbike class in conjunction with MotoGP. I got to watch some of the live highlights. I had a lot going on this weekend, so I wish I could have watched more. But, um, man, just, yeah, what they have going over there at Moto America, we talk about it a lot. We're huge fans of what they're doing. Um, check out their schedule. Go check out a race. If you can't be there live, make sure you subscribe to the Live Plus package. It's $109.99 for the season or $12.99 per event. 
just man, the Superbike grid is stacked this year in Moto America, and just so many good riders from overseas here in the states. Uh, young riders coming up. You have the veterans. I, I guess Gagne is you know considered a veteran now, <laughs> and we got uh, just so many fast fast riders in that class right now. Petrucci, um, it's it's locked and loaded. So um, as we continue on with the season, I'm excited to see this the 600 classes, the baggers, the Junior Cup, big fan of Junior Cup, Twins Cup, man, it's all the classes are loaded. They do a really good job with their series. Dunlop Motorcycle Tires, make sure you check them out, DunlopMotorcycleTires.com, 19-inch and 17-inch tires, off-road, street. They make all the rubbers you need for your steed. Go out and check their website out and support them. And Jerry Stinchfield, Roof Systems of Dallas, Texas, commercial industrial roofing company with nearly 40 years of experience. Check out his website at commercial commercialroofsystems.net. Our guest is on the line, man. I'm really excited to officially meet this guy, and uh, I've been watching him race for a long time. Um, Jeremy McWilliams, man, how are you? Good, thanks. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're loud and clear, man. You're loud and clear. <laughs> thanks cool. for uh, taking the time. I know you got a busy schedule. Yeah, actually, I've got a week at home. It's, it's been pretty busy. I've just returned from a test uh, week in Spain. So I have uh, this week at home and then back to you guys next week. Yeah, it's crazy. You haven't slowed down at all. Like, um, I obviously I'm a flat track. I grew up in the flat track stuff, but I'm a huge road race guy. My father, Randy actually raced. Um, he raced like the, uh, the 883 Harley series in America back in the day. And he did a couple Daytona 200s, but I kind of grew up a flat track kid, but I did a lot of, a lot of YouTubing on your career, a lot of, um, your, you know, your earlier career and things like that. But you just haven't slowed down. It's uh, it's actually incredible to see because I'm getting older. Like I'm, I'm getting up there in in the age bracket. And for what you do, man, and uh, competitive, it's it's really cool. What's that motivation for you to, you know, you could easily sit back and you know just kind of do something else. But that that um desire to compete is is really cool. Yeah, I think it's it's a motivation to keep, you know, to to. Uh, why do you keep this motivation? I guess it's 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 a part of your life that you that you feel you'll miss if it stops. Um, I guess we we get a a real natural high coming off a a big event, you know, where you've you know where you where you've competed at the very top and given the best you can give, and somehow I got rewarded with a podium or whatever that might be. And I I guess I I would, I've always been kind of worried about maybe missing those those days uh as my career has you know gone on and gone on because i, I gave up motor tp obviously i think my last race was in 2007 or something with with ilmore engineering on an 800 and i, uh, I think as time as that stopped and there was nothing else to take its place i was kind of looking around for other things to do and in 2005 i, I my last ride on, on the Prilia Cuba full season was 2004. So 2005, I went to British Championship and got hurt pretty badly and had to sit most of the year out. So I was really missing the, the competitive side of it in 2005. 2006, I had a chance to ride with Buell and we went to Daytona and uh, qualified second row. I think I qualified sixth and didn't get to the finish. You know, did about 35 or 36 laps with it. We had a um, just a technical issue and... And that kind of uh, just getting back and doing some of the AMA rounds that year kind of spurred me on to keep to keep going. Uh, funny things have happened since then. You know, uh, 
I did a little bit of IDM racing with uh, KTM 2008 and 9. I did a little bit of uh, background testing for them. And then one of their riders went on to win the, the German championship on an RC8. So uh, that was good. And that was kind of my first real connection with, with KTM and doing some development work with them. And time just went on a little bit and something else came up and came up. In 2012, I ended up road racing, Northwest 200. So it's, it's like the, the big lead up to the TT and uh, really enjoy that. Had a, a second the first time of trying at Northwest 200. So it's a, it's a nine mile road course here in Northern Ireland. And, uh, and you know, and, and just went on from there to 2000. And actually 2010, I won a, a British championship on a, on an XR1200. Uh, so I, I haven't really stopped, but in between the racing, there's, there's, there's always been lots of work for me, which I've, I've been really lucky to, um, to have carried on. So uh, I'm a test rider uh, for KTM Motorcycles in Austria. Yeah, there's, man, there's, like I said, there's so much you've done, so many different series and classes and bikes and um, loaded answer there. I, I definitely want to talk a little bit about your early days in kind of Grand Prix um, because like with you racing for so long, you've raced. I mean, even me, like my career is half the length of yours, not even. And I feel like I've raced forever. And the amount of changes I've seen in my series, like it's incredible. You know, you've gone from 500 CC, you know, Grand Prix bikes all the way, you know, I, I want to say it was like the mid nineties you were doing that. Um, early to mid nineties. And then all the way up to, you ended up racing, like you said, I think, I think you did a couple, couple MotoGP rounds in maybe 06, 07, but um, talk about like this, just the changes in MotoGP or Grand Prix racing from when you started uh, maybe the, the way the, like the style alone, like guys used to just, the style of racing was different and the bikes and, what has that been like to um, kind of see and like try to make those, try to adapt as a rider to those changes? Yeah, that's, you made a good point there, actually, Corey, because the, the, the style has changed quite a bit. You know, when I first started and remember my, I mean, I won a couple of Irish championships here and then I went on to uh, compete in a couple of European championships. Yeah, a friend of mine loaned me a 750 and I, I, and I, I raced at Aston and finished sixth, first time of kind in a European championship. And I was just lucky enough to be spotted by a, a local uh, team owner who had a, happened to have a Grand Prix team and he happened to be from Ireland as well. And he, he asked me to go racing in 1993. So before you were born, that. Uh, I was six. So yeah, right. I, was, I was young, mate. I was young. You were young. So, they, so I... Uh, I was 93, you know, the, the, the Dune era. And uh, I've been watching Wayne Rennie at the time. You know, Wayne Rennie was, was kind of my, my look up to legend. Uh, when he was racing on the, on the Marlboro Yamaha, that was, those were, you know, the golden years for me because we were, we were kind of really transfixed watching that before I even got, I was racing, but I wasn't racing in GPs. And then I got the chance to race in 93 and, that happened to be the same year that Wayne was injured. He, you know, he was leading the race that I was in whenever he crashed at Mazzano. And, uh, you know, obviously that was, was was hard to take for, for I'm sure, you know, for everybody in the paddock and him and his family, but he was still the, the look up to guy. And, you know, those years watching him 
previous to that year were, were the best years on the, on, in the two-stroke era. You know, then the, the Dune, you know, Mick came along and, um, and I, you know, four, four world championships, I think, and, and he was just like a completely, like another level of style. You know, he had a, he had a very typical, uh, unique style. And we all did the same. We didn't think about leaning off the motorcycle like we, we do right now. And probably my style is still quite traditional. And you feel that you're adapting a little bit. You feel like you're changing a little bit. But every time I see a photograph of myself, I'm thinking, no, <laughs> you, you, need, you need to try harder. You need to get off the bike more. And so it's difficult to adapt. And you see the likes of Valentino adapting to the new style as he had to, to be able to compete with the, with the young guys, which was, was something else for him to do. And you know, even if you look at where Yamaha were at the weekend and you know where Valentino was when he finished up, his career end of last year, you know, he, it looks like he was still doing a, a really good job even after all these years. But yeah, over those years, of course, styles have adapted. You know, we used to wear out tires in no time, not thinking about tire degradation at all. You know, really that was that didn't even come into it the, the way MotoGP riders ride right now. But in my career, main career really started in '93 and kind of finished end of 2004 on the Aprilia Cube. And the bikes had changed really radically over those those years. Of course, I started on a 500cc two-stroke. Um, realized we weren't going to get anywhere after like f- about four years. You know, my best uh, year was about 12th or so in the World Championship in 94. But the privateer 500s were so far away from the factory 500s that we really didn't have a chance. And uh, I jumped back on a 250. Well, not back on a 250. I jumped on a 250. You know, where my career started in national championship, I ended up racing world championship on a 250. And, and then that's kind of where my career took off. I was, yeah, I was second or something in Germany. And exactly, you know, when, when Valentino was there and Abrofi was fourth. So that, those were the days that kind of kick-started my career, probably. If I hadn't moved on to 250, I don't think I would have got much, much longer of a, of a career out of, out of GPs. So, yeah, I, I, I've actually, so the first YouTube video I typed in for Jeremy McWilliams, the first thing that came up was your 250cc win in 2001. And holy shit, it was like a 16 second win. Um, it's kind of funny because it was in 2001. So that's 20 years ago. And they're, <laughs> they're talking about you being an old dog in, in the class. And that was 20 <laughs> years ago. And I'm like, this dude still wins races. So um, anyway, it was on the Aprilia and it was kind of, it looked like it was a, um, it was wet, but then it was kind of drying out and blah, blah. It was a really technical, technical track. And what kind of impressed me and I, I was like, damn, like you had a huge lead and you really weren't slowing down. Like you probably could have slowed down maybe like, and just, you know, brought the win home, especially with like technical track conditions. But you just kept the throttle pinned the whole time and just dominated like to win a GP is, is amazing in itself, but to dominate that race. Um, and then at 37 years old to win your, your first one, um, is that's incredible. <laughs> so talk about that. That's honestly underrated. Like it's, um, if you, if anyone listening, you go back and you watch that race, it's incredible to watch, watch you ride the bike that day. I think I probably had a little bit of luck with with tire choice as well, Corey. You know that, as I said, the '98 one to me was was nearly. I know it was only a second, but it it, it was nearly better because 
I had to catch up with uh, Harada had got away in 98 at the Saxon Ring and Valentino and Loris were in front of me. I caught up with him. The fuel breather came off. And when the fuel breather came off, of course, I had to slow down, put the breather back on, then do it all again, caught up and, uh, you know, ultimately finished second. But Valentino said to me on the on the podium, he said, shit, you, you lost it in the, in the last lap. How did you pull it back? And I didn't even remember what happened because you're so excited that you don't think about these things. And then, it reminded me that I'd lost the front tire, um, and you know, about four corners from home. And then I remember and I said, Yeah, you're right, he had a big slide. So, you know, that was a nice one. Then winning in 2001 was basically, I said to the, the team, I want to change tires before we go out here. It looks like it's going to start to dry. And you know, the team were really against it. It was a brilliant Germany, Dieter Stappard, uh, uh, no longer with us, but a fantastic team boss. Um, Real, really good, very well-run team. Mike Leitner was my crew chief, who's now with KTM MotoGP. And they said, look, no, you're not changing. You, you know, everybody else is going to use wets. You've got front row. You're on the front row with Tits, you know, um, was Tits here there in 2001. No, he was in the 500, so we had Hijiro Kato, uh, with Marco Melandri. You know, we'd, it, 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 it was the, the, the golden era of 250, and... Uh, the Giro was a man to beat at the time. And I, I, I put intermediates on and went out with a kind of, kind of wet track. And luckily it started to dry for me and I just kept going. Because you never know who might have put slicks on. And that's why I kept my head down because I thought, yeah, I've got a 13, 14, 15 second lead, but I've got intermediates on. And of course, they will start to run out at the end of the race. So right. try to get right. as big a cap as I possibly could. Then I, I got a, a real telling off from the team for for wheeling on the last lap and celebrating because I knew that I wasn't going to get caught in the last lap. Yeah, they, but, I saw that. That was so. That was such a flex. I loved it. I was like, look at this. This is it's an incredible. Like I loved, I loved watching that race. And then, like I said, when they they called you an old dog. Uh, I was like, man, this guy is literally still winning races still. Um, but man, what an awesome memory. I'm sure. Yeah, great memories, you know, even the year before that with the Prilio on the 500, it was a V-twin 500, and I rode it in 2000 and had a couple of podiums on it. And that that was, you know, good, really nice to get a podium in Italy because it's our, it was our home track. And we were on the underdog of the 500 class because we only had two cylinders. And of course, you know, we were up against the V-4s. This is what happens if Valentino crashed or took Biagi down on the last lap and I was right with them and uh, just pick the pieces up. But, you know, still great memories from from those those two-stroke days. And, you know, I just, we just thought, talking about this not too long ago, had they stuck with two strokes, would they be faster than the MotoGP bikes at the minute? They probably would because, you know, I think those factory 500s were making about 190 horsepower back then. Wow. Yeah, those those 500cc bikes are, honestly, they're absolutely terrifying. Um I've sat on one and I've seen them up close and I've never ridden a 500 CC GP bike, but just seeing those bikes and how fast everybody went on those things. And I'm like, Holy shit. And you know, no, uh, you know, it's, it's not the same road racing back then. It was no offense to the riders now, but those bikes pretty much almost ride themselves. Like, you know, there's so much technology in these bikes. And back then it was just, it was just so different. So yeah, it's anybody that's raced in that 500 CC grand P, grand prix era, like just freaking legends. Um, so it's really cool to, 
And then for you, like come through the ranks and, um, and do it for so long and you're still racing today. And I think it's absolutely awesome. And a little bit, I don't know, I, I wanted to ask you about it, but so a lot of the races and series and classes that you've done in your kind of like your recent years, you've done the 1200 Harley stuff you've done. Um, you mentioned you rode for Buell in 2006 and you did some of those races, which I think is incredible. Cause I grew up a Buell kid, actually. You probably don't know that, but my dad's a uh, Harley dealership. We, we were one of the first dealerships to sell Buell in America. Um, right. so I actually remember, I remember you doing the Buell thing in 06 and then, um, now you're doing bagger stuff with uh, Indian motorcycle. So the classes and series that you've done, it's very American based, like shit. I mean, you've, you've done the Harley, like you did the Buell. Now you're on the Indian motorcycle. What is it about doing these, like these classes, the Harley, the Buell, um, coming over here, racing in the States? Like what is, what is that, um, desire to do those kind of classes as opposed to anything else? Uh, firstly, I love racing in the States. Uh, we've always really been well, welcome, well received and great, great teams. Uh, not that, you know, the teams are any better or anything in the States, but they're, they're, they seem to be a much more, um, close knit kind of, kind of smaller, uh, you know, family, family friends type teams that, that, that just are, they're fun to work with. And I've just had really good experiences, you know, you know, coming over, um, racing for Jeff at Bloomington Motorcycles, and whenever he sponsored me at um, uh, for the, at Indianapolis in thirteen and fourteen, we had a couple of wins on the on the twelve hundred Zen, and that was just a small shop with with just a great uh, just a great desire to to do well at at Indy on the, with, with their own bike. And it sat in the, in the dealership from one year to the next and didn't turn away. We came back again, raced it again and won again. Those, those are the sort of memories that are you know made for life. Um, I, I was lucky enough. Jeff came down to, to, to say hello when we were at Daytona. He, he, he came a long way just to come over and say hello. So I've, I've just got great memories of, of working with, with with great people, you know, Eric Buell was a, as you know, an out and out absolute enthusiast and loved his racing. Uh, had had a great desire to 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 build his own motorcycles and and beat the rest. And you know, we we did the best we could on on the Buell at that time when we were racing in in the open, actually in the two hundred class, and then some AMA races. I remember scrapping with Chaz Davis and the likes, and uh, maybe with a best result of about fifth or. So at our sixth, maybe at Laguna Seca on it. So still, even though we were not winning races on it, still, still great memories on that, on that pool and, and working with the team and then going on to help develop the water-cooled bike that, that then went on to racing World Superbike. So I had very first outing on, on the, the water-cooled version that he then brought out, which would be the 11... Uh, 1125 25 yeah yep yep really cool bike yeah yeah and a great bike and he made a great bike in out of that in the end but yeah so coming back to to the rest in the states um of course i've still got friends there from when i raced for kenny roberts uh, for two years in in gp 500s um i still know obviously know kenny very well no chuck axland who's you know who's uh, working in Moto America and obviously no Wayne. 
And uh, just the, the opportunity to come back over and ride for Indian was, was something I, I just couldn't say no to. It was, it, it, it was lovely to get back and do all, kind of work with a similar minded team, a team that are very enthusiastic and really are so motivated to, to try and win a championship. And that's, that's really what, as you know, what motivates a rider to, to, to give his best and, and put everything into it. And it all came about, you know, really about two years ago, I should have been there because Paul Langley from SNS Cycle had phoned me and said, we, we need a rider to come over and help with this new class, this new bagger class. Of course, I looked at him like everybody else and wondered, <laughs> what the hell is, is this? And, and how is this ever going to work? And, um, you know, whoever came up with the, with the bagger idea is a genius because it, <laughs> it really works so well and they, and they ride so well. So having that opportunity to come over was just unfortunately just whenever the pandemic hit and I couldn't come because we weren't allowed to travel. Um, and yeah, I thought no more of it. Of course, you know, they put the best rider on it. You know, uh, Tanner's done a, a great job and uh, to to get a chance then to ride with him at a test, you know, the beginning of this year with a an opportunity maybe to ride it at Daytona was something that I couldn't say no to. And of course, going out, you do feel very nervous. And, but I was definitely not, uh, not as confident as I, I would usually be about, about getting that ride because other riders were testing out for it. But maybe, you know, some of my, um, my background kind of helped it there as well, just in, in terms of maybe how to improve the setup a little bit. And, uh, Getting to ride at Daytona and getting a one-two there was just—it's like that. It's like it's like reliving the, the highlight of your career, really, because you're coming along there and not really expecting to get too much out of it, and coming away one and two in the championship was like a—it's like a dream come true. Brilliant yeah, tomorrow. yeah, absolutely. No, that's yeah. It was really cool to see, and you mentioned you mentioned a lot there. Um, Chuck is a really good guy, man. I, I really enjoy Chuck and he's an avid listener to the pod. So, um, yeah, he came up to me at, at a race in Daytona. It was like a couple of years ago and he introduced himself and he's like, yeah, I really, and he started quoting things from the podcast. He's like, yeah, I really like the podcast. I was like, Oh, you listen to That's awesome. So, um, yeah, really cool guy. I really like Chuck and uh, everything there. Like I said, I'm a huge, huge Moto America fan. And I'm proud to say I've been a bagger, fan since day one and i used to get a lot of shit about it like i was like man i i was like i don't really care who won superbike who won the bagger class and um everybody would give me crap about it and now everybody's starting to jump on the train a little bit so it's uh it's awesome to see and i I initially thought i you know i'd like to ride a bagger i was like ah you know when they started i was like yeah i'd be kind of cool to do like it was kind of casual blah blah and now it's not so casual. I, I looked at the top speeds from Daytona and y'all were running like 170 mile an hour on the backers at Daytona. I'm like, Ooh, I think I'm out on this one now. So uh, <laughs> it's actually insane how fast you guys are going on, on those motorcycles and uh, really cool to get some background on that a little bit. Um, Cause I was going to ask you how, how that ride came about and, and the, you know, there's some good guys on those baggers like Tyler O'Hara. He's really underrated as a, uh, as a, as a guy that can ride kind of weird shit. Like he's, you know, he's always been really good on the 1200 Harleys. He's really good on the baggers. Like he can ride a flat track bike. He can ride a supermoto bike. Like he's, you know, people are like, Oh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I'm going to do this class win it. Cause it's just Tyler Harris. It's like, dude, Tyler Harris is a bad dude. So, um, 
Yeah, no, it's uh, really cool. You mentioned all that. I wanted to kind of, you, you kind of talked about it briefly, but I had it in my notes here. Um, Kenny Roberts, you, you rode for Kenny, you rode for his team in the Grand Prix or MotoGP. I don't know what they called it at that point. I think it was MotoGP. Um, but yeah, Kenny Roberts, man, what an interesting guy. I've had him on the podcast. He's, he's actually awesome. Um, I was kind of nervous. Everybody's like, yeah, he's kind of a dick, you know, uh, I was like, well, I'm kind of a dick. So maybe we'll get along. So, um, we actually got along really well and we could have probably talked for hours. Um, really cool guy. Uh, it's cool that you guys, you know, you mentioned you still have a relationship with him. Um, how often do you talk to Kenny and what was, uh, what was that like riding for, uh, Kenny Roberts, man, that's really cool. Well, I haven't seen him for a while. I've, I've spoke to him about a year ago or whatever, and um, keep in t- contact, just me- me- message him the odd time. But I'd said, when Chuck said to me, well, are you going to come over and do this bagger class or not then? And I said, well, we, you know, we're, we're working towards towards trying to get something uh, you know, together, and uh, it's not guaranteed, but I'm, I might be over. And he said, well, how do you think you're going to do over here? And I said, well, I wouldn't be going over unless I thought I could at least win one. And he just laughed, and I said, "He said, well, really? You think you might come, you could you could come over?" I said, "Well, I know Daytona. It's all about the draft, isn't it? I've just got to get myself in the right place at the right time." And um, I said, "You know, I haven't seen Kenny for a while. Why don't you bring him down? Uh, you know, I'd like I'd like to see him if I do get on the podium." And, he's, and kind of, Chuck just laughed at that and thought, "Yeah, you're you're out of your league, man. You're not going to do that." And then, of course, when I got on the podium, I said, "So where's Kenny?" And he he just laughed and gave me a hug and said. <laughs> Well, well done. So uh, maybe I'll get get to catch up with Kenny at one of these ones during the year. Um, it's a pity they didn't run them at Coda, actually. I think that was a, an opportunity missed because it's such a big crowd there. And uh, as you said, there's so many people watching baggers now. You know, like Chuck mentioned that, you know, the, the hierarchy at, uh, at Yamaha were watching it. You know, Lynn Jarvis and those guys love it. So because it's so different, because it's something else. Yeah, the the last my last memory of Kenny was at at the Sturgis Rally, so I'm not sure I can tell you most about what happened there. But it was just, <laughs> it was, a, it was good fun. Let's just say that uh, we stayed at one of the the Harley dealerships. Um, one of the one of the guys that owned the Harley dealership there, so we had a, a choice of any Harley that, that we wanted that we could ride at any day, which was a lot of fun. And uh, you know, one thing that, that that I remember forever was you know Kenny said. Uh, to me, you know, you, you've come over here. I've had Sean, Michelle, Bale over. I've had all my riders. They've all come over to Sturgis, and none of them can can do this this little trick. And I said, "Well, what's the trick?" And he said, "Well, you get the stop end of the road. You know, you just basically drop the clutch and smoke the rear tire out of the junction." I thought he was joking. I thought he's not going to he's not going to drop the clutch on on this tuned Harley that he had and and start to spin it. And of course, it's exactly what he did. He he gets to the stop end, drops the clutch in the back, the rear, smokes the rear out and right across. Basically, he sets it sideways across the street, closed road, of course, no no traffic. Sets it sets it sideways and spins up the road. And I thought, okay, that's a bit of pressure. I never get, I never never did do it. Kenny's the only person I, I ever saw doing it, and that really really impressed me. A little bit like the time that he he turned up and just jumped on his flat track bike. Uh, at, at Indy. Indy Mile, yeah. So that was impressive because we'd asked him beforehand, we said, have you had a run on it since you raced it, you know, all those years ago? And he said, no. I said, have you tested it? He said, no, no, I'm not going to test it. I'm just going to get on it. And he got on it. And obviously the rest is history. You know, I was standing beside 
Valentino looking at his face and, and he just couldn't believe what Kenny was 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 doing on that on that 750 Yamaha. Um, yeah, some, yeah, so he, he's, he's a legend. He's, he's definitely a legend and something that uh, yeah, I, it was a lot of fun working with him with the team with him and Chuck and, and the, the whole team were were a great team. Probably the most fun I've ever had when you're racing to work with a team that that you really really all get on so well with and with some fun times. Uh, we had Alpine Stars hospitality and Kenny was on one side and all the rest of the guys were on the other. So we had our own side of the hospitality and it was just Team Roberts. So some great, great, great memories from, from those two years with him. Yeah, yeah. He's, I, I, like I said, I really enjoyed talking with Kenny Roberts and as a flat track kid growing up, I mean, he's, he's legend. So yeah, really, really cool insight. Appreciate that. Um, you mentioned you know, a little bit about Rossi, uh, Capriosi, uh, you, those guys you raced with coming up through, um, Rossi, like you, so you raced with, uh, Valentino in two fifties, right? Uh, is that where you first started racing him? Uh, I was, he was in one, two fives when I started, so, or, or he hadn't, he hadn't started when I started. I, I did a couple of years before he turned up, he, he turned up and won the one, two, five world championship. Then he jumped on a 250 and he won the 250 championship. And then he came straight into 500s. And uh, I think that must have been 99 was his first year or whatever. Because in 2000, uh, when I finished third at Donington on the Aprilia, he, uh, excuse me, he won his first race. So that, his first race win was uh, 2000. It was the same year that Kenny Roberts Jr. won the world championship. And then Rossi went on to win, you know, multiple world championships after that. Yeah. I mean, what was like for you? So, I mean, that's actually really cool. Like you were one class above him and, you know, he's coming up through a, a young Rossi. What was he doing different that kind of separated him from everybody else? Like, I mean, like in, in motocross, supercross, like Ricky Carmichael or like Jeremy McGrath was kind of scrubbing the jumps, like BMX style over the jumps. And, and then Carmichael was training real hard. And then you have guys like Marquez who just a lean angle and dragging his elbow. And what was like, you know, um, actually Kenny Roberts was like, they say the first guy to really start dragging knee, um, you know, and, and kind of steering with the rear wheel um, that kind of, you know, he, he kind of brought that to the table. What did, what did Rossi bring to the table from your perspective that, that made him so good for so long? No, you know, when you're watching him, of course, we always watched 250 race, before we race 500s. And the reason for doing that was to to watch and see where the where, the, where the, any possible overtaking maneuvers were. Um, I remember Biagi used to go out on track, actually, and watch them stand in the track side. I watched it uh, from the camera angles, basically, because you got to see a bit more. And he just... He just had that something else that, 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 you know, just he was just that step above everybody else. You know, he was like the Marquez whenever he was in Moto 2, you know, starting from the back row of the grid and winning uh, at Valencia, wherever it was when Marquez did that, you know. It, but Marquez looked a lot more aggressive than Rossi. Rossi was, yeah, he was, he was harsh, but um, maybe not always fair, but always looked like, you know, he, he would make a, more of a clean move stick, um, and some some of the places where he passed and you know what he did was just 
really on another level compared to the riders that he was racing with. When he came to 500, you know, it took him a little while just to adapt to 500. But when he did, then again, he did exactly the same. And, you know, we can remember all of the, the great races. They're all actually worth watching again because, you know, those Rossi years were, were particularly special. And uh, it, it was nice to be racing in a, in a world championship with them. But on the other hand, you kind of knew that he was on one of the best bikes and he was the best rider. And it was always going to be really difficult to, to beat him. That time at Donington in 2000, I led it for 14 laps and then and, and did the same like I did in Assen. And I tried to get away. Uh, you know, this, this is a year before Assen, but I tried to get away on wet tires. Everybody was on wet tires and I just destroyed the wet tires. And basically they came back to me at the end of the race. Yeah, at one point, I had about a three-second lead or something. And then they just they started to close it and close it. And then, of course, Rossi came past. And then Kenny Roberts Jr. came past in the last lap. And Rossi went on to win his, his first race. But when he once he won a race at, uh, at 500, then he just, it, just seemed to, it, it just seemed to gel. Everything, everything he did, he just won one race after the next, after the next. He... You know, the, the time that he jumped from off Honda and on to Yamaha in South Africa was one of the most special races you'll ever watch because nobody had ever managed to win back-to-back on a, on a different manufacturer. He was the first to do it, jumping off the all-conquering Honda onto the, the, you know, the dog of the Yamaha, as it was at the time, and he goes out and he wins the first race on it. So, yeah, some special memories and... Also, just his, his demeanor and the way he, he got along with other riders. Yeah, of course, he, he had his rivals that he didn't really get on with, but he, he, he always hid that so well. And it, just how he got along in the paddock and that sort of aura that followed him about was, was definitely something that, you know, was, was nice to uh, just, just to witness and watch uh, how he, he got along. Nothing ever upset him. It, when he had a bad race or, or a bike problem, he never blamed the, the bike. He, he just said, ah, just one of those things and got yeah. on with it. You know, a lot of riders yeah. learn a lot from that. No, absolutely. That's one thing, too, that I've always liked about Nicky. Um, obviously, go back to the flat track thing. We're huge, huge, Nick, huge Nicky Hayden fans here on the podcast. And yeah, 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 absolutely. We were we raced with Nicky as well. And Nicky was always the quiet man and always came over on a Sunday evening. We always had a beer at my motorhome at the end and Nicky would always come over and just stand and chat with us. He would rarely take a beer, but he he was just, just, just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Yeah, well, yeah, just really nice guy, really nice family. They're just, But like his, his kind of mentality of never blaming the bike, because he's been on some bikes that look like shit. I mean, they, they just weren't handling for him and he just couldn't gel with the bikes and, you know, it would be very easy for somebody to kind of deflect blame and, you know, not take accountability and just blame the motorcycle. And, you know, he's the kind of guy, Nicky Hayden, you know, the handlebars could be falling off the motorcycle and he's not going to blame the bike. Um, and so I really, I really look to Nicky as, um, inspiration in that aspect as a young racer. Um, cause I used to make a lot of excuses when I turned pro and, you know, it's just like, I was always deflecting blame. And I always realized it's like, man, if I don't start taking accountability, I'm never mm-hmm. going to address that there's a problem and I'm never going to get better. So I'm, I'm really big on, um, like rider coaching, teaching the kids I help out accountability 
and Nikki and, and even Rossi, like they're, they were huge in that regard. And I think that's, uh, that's pretty special that you mentioned that. So, um, I wanted to move on a little, little bit more. Uh, you talked about it briefly, but it's an interesting topic, especially here in America. Like it just blows people's minds. Um, street racing, like, uh, Isle Man, um, you've done, you know, it's huge where you're at, right? Like overseas, it's, it's very well known. It's, it's, um, very popular over here. Just the aspect, um, of it is just crazy to many Americans, but you've done some street racing. Um, wanted to talk to you about that. And you've never, I don't think you've raced Isle Man from what I've seen. Obviously you've, you, you've probably been there hundred, I mean, not hundreds of times, but you've been there a bunch. Um, talk about your, your street racing career and how gnarly for the American listeners that don't know much about it. Cause we're reaching a different audience here. How gnarly is something like street racing or the Isle Man? Yeah, it's quite different. You got, you need a slightly different approach, but as time has, has gone on, you know, that approach has become very like um, approaching it like it would like a circuit, you know, you know, some of the riders at the moment are really, you know, pushing the limits and pushing the limits uh, to a point. So when you watch the Isle of Man TT now, you know, it's virtually like watching a, a proper, you know, circuit race where riders are sliding and, you know, and, and using every inch of the, of the tarmac. My own experience started in Macau in 93. I didn't uh, really want to go street racing, but the team that I was with, uh, that, that, that was a background. They'd done multiple Isle of Man TTs. They'd raced at the Macau Grand Prix, which is beside Hong Kong, little island beside Hong Kong. Um, the Northwest 200, the, uh, the Ulster Grand Prix here, which is a, a circuit right on my doorstep. If, if I've cycled from my house, I'm probably on the circuit in 15, 20 minutes. And it's, a, it's the fastest road circuit in the world, you know, with an average speed of, I think Peter Hickman holds it now at 136 miles per hour average. So you can imagine just how, uh, you know, how much you, how you've got a ride to achieve uh, an average speed like that whenever you've got stop, start, hairpins and, and 90 degree, you know, short, uh, slow to slower turns. Um, I think the Isle of Man is next in terms of speed. It's 135 points something uh, average and it's over 36, 36 or 37 miles. I didn't do the TT because I thought it would take me too many years to learn it. And I didn't really have the time to really to go, you know, leave work, uh, you know, just take myself away for a week or, or whatever to go and ride around the TT course when it was open to the public, because that's what you've got to do. You've got to go and put your homework in. I suppose it's been eased a little bit, you know, with the advent of, of, of gaming, you know, that a lot of the riders try to learn that before they go over to it, just uh, by PlayStation or whatever, whatever console they use. And, uh, after I won, I won the first leg of the Macau Grand Prix in '93. Quite a few American riders at that, actually. Um, and the the big names at the time were Steve Hislop and Robert Dunlop, and we were all on 500s, so 500 cc Yamahas on a street race. You know, it's probably not the best combination, uh, and it's it, it's it's particularly dangerous because it's just Armco barrier the whole way around. There's no runoffs anywhere. The, the, the Macau 
street races, basically just uh, Armco barrier, or I don't know what you guys call it in America, steel line barriers the whole way around. So I won the first race, and then the second race I had a technical, and I think I, I, I took that as a sign, you know, definitely enough's enough. So I didn't ride in the second leg of the race. And then I didn't race again on the roads until 2012, so nearly 20 years later. And that was at the Northwest 200 on a Super Twin, uh, on a KMR Super Twin. A friend of mine, Ryan Farquhar, who holds a record for most road race wins in the world. He's in the Guinness Book of Records with something like 300-odd road race wins. He builds the bikes, and they invited me along to be his teammate in 2012. He finished first, I was second. Um, came back the next year and then I won it. Unfortunately, uh, Ryan had a serious accident at it. Uh, he's now recovered, but it, it put pay to his, his road racing career. And now he just specializes in building bikes. So I raced at the Northwest 200 in that class on and off since 2012. And I've got about three or four wins or something. Um, quite a few times. And I think that the Northwest 200 is, a, is an easy circuit to learn. Korea, if you if you if you turned up at it, you know it's it's like a big triangle with a with a fast coast road, lovely, beautiful coast road, and the nicest part of the world. About two hundred thousand people or something turn up over the week to watch this. It's quite a spectacular event, and uh, it's in the best part of the world. It's on our north coast. Um, beautiful scenery, you know, best. Best accommodation and restaurants you'll find anywhere in the world, and uh, so we go along to it because it's more of a of a fun event for us. And if you pick a win up at it, then that's a huge bonus, you know. And it's a, it's it's a big, certainly for you know for me at my stage of my career, it's a uh, it, it's a lovely thing to to do if you can pick a win up at it. Even getting on the podium is a big thing at the Northwest Two Hundred. So going to go back this year. Uh, the, this time next month, actually, we'll be at it um, there for the whole week. Get to play a bit of golf at Royal Port Rush. Um, and, and if any American listeners are, are golf fans, they'll know all about the Royal Port Rush. It's top t- eight or top ten in the world uh, ranked of golf courses. So yeah. big golf fan as well. Just watched the Masters uh, day before yesterday. So we, we just have a, um, a great week. Take friends and family up. Um, try to stay as safe as possible. and. Uh, you know, what will be, will be, if we get a win or, or a podium, then that's a big bonus. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good perspective, honestly. I mean, there's kind of a racetrack here um, in, uh, in America we do every year. It's called the, the Barbara Fritchie Classic. It's in Frederick, uh, Frederick, Maryland, and it's a really narrow cushion half mile. And mm-hmm. I always say, like, I'll never ride above 80% on that track. It's very, like, it's, it, you know, flat track's technical in general, but this track is very narrow and it's very, very technical. Like the back straightaway is downhill. The front straight straightaway is uphill. And it's uh, one of my favorite tracks, but um, it's on July 4th every year, which is really cool. But it's um, it's just a little it's technical. So I'll, I go there. I'm going to ride 80 percent if that's good enough for a win. Cool. But um, it's one of those racetracks that you got to just respect. And I think. I think modern road racing or Isle Man, I think it teaches guys um, kind of to respect what you're doing. I think a lot of that gets away in racing sometimes. Like guys just, they lose that that um, perspective. It's like, dude, if you don't have it, like if the track's a little, if the track's wet and road racing or patchy or whatever, or if flat track, if it's a little bit bumpy, 
Um, you got to give what the track will give you and you got to respect it. And I think actually, you know, what you've talked about there that translates over really well, um, to what, to what we do on the, on the racetrack. So no, that's some, some really good insight. Um, I had one more thing I wanted to, uh, to ask you about, and then we have, uh, a quick segment we do every show it's called the higher low line. Um, couple, couple this or that questions, but man, I was doing some research on you and, uh, it said you were an actor in a supporting role with Scarlett Johansson. So, um, I, I can't not bring that up. Like, that's crazy. I never heard of the movie. Um, obviously Scarlett Johansson is big, like that's big time. Uh, how the hell did, how did that come about? And what was it like? Uh Like, I want to know what was it like? Like, did you work with her direct? Like, you know, how, how was she? Ah, she she was a darling, she was absolute, just a really down to earth, lovely, lovely girl. And um, yeah, we spent a lot of time together, stuck up in the Highlands of Scotland, making this quite strange movie, uh, uh, kind of about aliens. Uh, kind of, a, it does have a strange storyline. Um, it's it is more for your uh, your movie buffs, your movie aficionados. No, you know, not your typical type. Uh, uh, movie and it's it is quite strange. It still ranks as the the Guardian newspapers in its all time top five. But I guess everybody's got different tastes. It wouldn't wouldn't be mine. But it's a it was just a strange thing that came along. Actually, uh, I, I'll tell you. I've got to tell you a funny story about it because I was sitting in this very room where I'm sitting now talking to you uh, on my computer, and uh, I got a message through saying, um, "Can we speak?" Uh, uh, I need to to you about uh, an opportunity to take part in a to, to act in a in a movie and uh, it was the, the, the director was a guy called Jonathan Glazer and um, this girl called me and said look I'm I'm working for Jonathan Glazer and uh, we would like to look at you with a perspective of you being the bad guy in a movie and of course I just thought this was a freaking wind up I thought this has got to be got to be one of my friends uh taking the, the, the mickey out of me and uh you know i didn't think much of it and she said no no i'm uh you know i'm I, you have to, if you google jonathan glazer you'll see who he is and what he's made before this movie's before of course i did and yeah he's a famous he is he's a famous uh, producer so i thought this can't be right anyway i said look why don't you just get jonathan to skype me then uh thinking that you know That'll never happen. And of course, the next half an hour later, Jonathan Glazer skypes me and said, hey, Jeremy, it's Jonathan. And it was him or else it was a really good lookalike. And I thought, uh, OK, so what do you need me to do? And he said, I want you to come over. I want you to be the bad guy because I need somebody who can ride a motorcycle fast in all kinds of conditions. And you, he said, look, you've got you've got a look that we need. But I need to see you wearing a pair of leathers. Could you put a pair of leathers on and walk up and down your living room? At this stage, and I'm thinking, this is definitely a piss take. <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not going to go and put a pair of leathers on and start walking up and down my living room. So I said, look, why don't you let me get my wife to video it, and I can send you the video. So that's what he said. Yeah, okay, I understand. Uh, come back to me. So my wife came home from work. Said, you're not going to believe this phone call I've just had today. I've got to put a pair of leathers on. I've got to walk up and down the living room. You've got to video me, and, and then I've got to send this to Jonathan Glazer. 
of course, she laughed, thinking it was still a, a bit of a wind-up. Um, videoed me, and as, as she was videoing me, my best friend walked through the back door, and I thought at that stage, this has been a setup. There's got to be a camera here or somebody's watching me. And he laughed and said, what the hell are you doing? And I told him the story and then sent the, the video to Jonathan, and he said, yeah, you've got the part. I come and meet you over in Glasgow. And I went over and met Scarlett and... The, the, the crew uh, at a, an old uh, derelict set of flats and you know so the story began I was there for about uh, about 40 days work or so and so it took me out of a lot of stuff that I was doing and uh, you know the, the movie's called Under the Skin if you want to go and google it you'll, uh, you'll, you'll see me in there and of course everybody thought that would be the start of my movie career and I said that I would. I never really want to do it, take part in another movie again. There's so much waiting about. There's so much hanging around in the bar at night, uh, then waiting for the light the next day, waiting for the for the conditions to be just right. It's a long, drawn out process. But getting to meet Scarlett and and the rest of the crew was was fun, and you know she's really down to earth, very very easy going, and just uh, came across as, as 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 a really you know lovely person, just. Uh, normal person I know that you know you don't expect that when you meet someone like Scarlett Johansson but um she was one of the best that's so awesome yeah I'm a I'm a big fan of her man that's really cool um that you got to do that I, I was just like research and I'm like no way I was like well I gotta ask him about that so um man this has been a a really good interview I'm just stoked to hear your story a little bit and translate all the you know things you've done to uh some of our audience but um so we do a high low line here it's uh this or that pick one or the other i'm kind of doing things a little differently for this one because i have a couple questions that it's kind of open-ended but i'm just going to break my own rules here and just go with it but um this or that and like a brief explanation on on why you picked that um generally speaking when you describe this series are you is it grand prix or moto gp what is it for jeremy mcwilliams uh when describing what the series that you're talking about yeah like what's the term for uh for you is it grand prix or moto gp well yeah it's not it's moto gp but i have to had to change because you know in my day it was gp 500 so i've had to you you do change whenever they, they do change the names of these series and yeah it's motor gp right? it's, it's all motor gp the odd time you forget yourself you need to talk about gps but yeah at the minute it, it, everything's motor gp isn't it and it has been for quite a few years when i was racing 500s it was just called gps so gp 500 you know 250 or 500 gp and 250 gp that was the way that we knew it back then yeah. I mean, just the, um, so like, what do you call flat track? Do you call it American dirt track? Do you call it flat track? Cause no, flat track. Yeah. Flat track. Flat we, track. We we, flat track. Yeah. I, I watch, I watch, you know, quite a, a bit of it. I'm a big fan of it as I was of, you know, Mickey Carmichael and, uh, you know, the, 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 the Jeremy McGraths and the Bubba Stewart's and all those guys back then. I watched as much as I could of, of, of that when I could. Oh, badass. Yeah. I didn't know if you, uh, if you were a flat track guy or not, if you, uh, have you ever, have you raced any flat track or rode it? No, uh, I've seen a few of my mates getting injured riding it. And I thought I better, I just better give it a miss. I've seen, you know, Leon Haslam and, uh, 
John McGuinness and those guys, they've all had a go at it and they all seem to struggle a little bit at it. So I'd love to do it. I'd love to get the hang of it. You know, I went to, you know, watched, uh, we went up to see one of the, the tests when we were uh, testing in America with, with Indian, went over to watch one and it's it's a lot of fun to watch, but it does look like you've got to have full commitment, you know, and when the track's a little bit rough, it looks super, uh, you know, Shitty. sketchy. It's really sketchy, you know, whenever the back wheel's off the floor for so, so long. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's kind of funny. Just um, I love hearing um, road racers talk about their track conditions and a lot of the guys, the the GP guys nowadays, it seems like they're, they're kind of like, I don't want to say this word, but whiny with like some of the racetracks. So like I see some of these badass MotoGP guys and they don't, you know, they're, they don't like the track conditions on some of these tracks. I'm like, man, are they that bad? I mean, I guess they are when you're going that fast on that motorcycle, but it's like, damn, they would, you know, some of the racetracks were thrown with, it's like, dude, it, they're miserable. So it's, it's kind of, it's actually like surreal to hear, um, I think it was Aleish was talking about how bad Coda was like the track surface. And I'm yeah. like, damn, is it really that bad? Like I've ridden some road race tracks here in America where there's literally grass growing, growing through the pavement. And, um, you have four feet of runoff, like, uh, but I guess that's kind of like the tracks overseas. There's so much, so much runoff and they're just built differently than, than what we have here in, in America. But I just thought that was kind of crazy to hear that. Yeah, I, I guess we yeah we we look at it. Yeah, I have to say you know the the surface doesn't look great at Coda. You, you know when you see a lot of the it's got better. Um, you know, about a year ago it was pretty bad. But when I watch what they you know what you flat trackers race on sometimes you know it, it's it's proper uh, it gets proper caught up in some places. But but we were lucky enough to go down and watch Shania um, when they were testing. A small track. I can't remember the name of the track. And my claim to fame was I managed to fix her exhaust for her because it had broken a bracket. So I fixed the exhaust for her and she got back out again. That was just before Daytona. Yeah, she she told me that. She's like, you never guess Jeremy McWilliam was working on my bike. I was like, dude, that's awesome. So uh yeah, that that's really funny. That's that's cool though that you, you got in there and got it done. So well, it, was, uh, it was so cool. You could get you could get to stand so close to the track there because you know you could you could stand at the entrance point there and, and just watch how how sideways they've got to get, how much commitment they've got to have to to, to go in there at that kind of pace. And as I said, you know, the track was wasn't perfectly smooth. It, it was definitely it took it took some balls, you know, to, to, to do what they were doing and uh, and and set the lap times that they were doing on on that surface. Yeah, what is I mean, you've obviously you grew up racing in, in, you know, the UK where, you know, it's always cold, rainy, snowy, uh, <laughs> you know, the British championship is, is just insane. It's, it's wildly underrated what those, what those guys are able to do, the aggression levels, the, the track conditions, um, people here, man, it's, it's like, if it's 40 degrees or 50 degrees, um, you know, it's too cold for people, the track's too cold, whatever, but growing up in, where, where you're at, you guys race some shit, pretty much the gnarliest conditions for, for what you do. Um, do you have a, you've raced a lot. I, I should have asked you this sooner, but do you have a favorite track that, that you enjoy um, anywhere? It could be, you know, it could be in the UK or anywhere. What's, what's your favorite track? 
I mean, there's, I have a couple of favourite tracks. Um, one of the road races I do, or I, I, I did here a few times, was called the Armoy Road Races. It's right up beside where Joey Dunlop uh, was brought up. So it was, it's his territory. It's kind of where he tested motorcycles whenever he was road racing. So the, the, the Joey Dunlops and the Robert Dunlops all, and the Kennedys, they're all of the, kind of the famous Armoy Armada, they called them. So it's a really little, tight, gnarly, rough road race. But on the back straight, you've got sixth gear jumps. So when you're barreling along the back straight, you're pinned in sixth gear and the, you're jumping the bike probably, you know, three feet in the air, which is something that you never get to experience on a racetrack, on a, on a purpose-built racetrack. It's the only place you'll ever get to, t- to, to experience that is on a road race. And it's kind of one that keeps on coming up in, in my memories of, of uh, you know, lock, locking handlebars over the jump with uh, another guy, another local guy from here, who ended up pipping me to the post on that that that, that particular event. Uh, but it, it it it's quite different and quite um, quite trying to get used to it. A little bit like you know, you you talk about your flat track, and this is this is completely out of your comfort zone. It's um, you know, it's it's dangerous. You're 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 jumping over the last jump at a bit of an angle, and both wheels off the floor, and you and you do it again on the other side of the track. So that's one that stands out as as uh, as probably a, a love hate type circuit. But I, I do I, I did love it once I I got to the grips with it and set a lap record at it and and so forth. And then you go to the complete opposite and something like Phillip Island in uh, which is. In Australia, it's a little island not far from Melbourne, and that has to be my fa- my favourite track of all time. I set the pole position out of three times in GP two hundred and fifty GP once and five hundred GP twice, and that's a fast, super fast, fast flowing like fourth gear. I'm sure you've watched it. You know, Casey's corner, Casey Stoner's corner, where it's it's flat and fifth sideways and fifth. It's really fast through hay sheds, fourth gear up over the hill, um, and the Lukey Heights is third gear. There's 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 only like one or two slow corners on, and the rest of it's all fourth and fifth gear turns. And that's got to be my favourite. Super smooth, super fast, in the most beautiful part of the world. But I've also had the opportunity to race all over the world, and I, I do love, uh, you know, I love Laguna Seca. I love uh, the. I love the, the just the undulations of Laguna. Um, I do love Mugello again because of the topography. It's it's up and down. It's it, it's very very fast and flowing. Plus, it's it's not just a, a flat track. You know, it's it it's got um, r- rising uphill. It's got drop over the top line corners. A bit of everything. So, I think if you put them all in, into one, two, three, it would have to be Phillip Island, uh, Mugello. Laguna's got to get in there somewhere. Um, where else is really a lot of fun to ride? Oh, yeah, Porto Mayo in Portugal. It's the same thing. It's flying crest over the hill. You know, you, you you actually see the MotoGP bikes jumping over that hill a little bit now as well. So it's a special track as well. I love it. Yeah, that is, uh, I've never been to any of those minus Laguna, but I've played a lot of them on my video game. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, everyone seems to like Phillip Island. So that's, that's actually really cool to hear. Um, so coming over to America, what, uh, what's your favorite part of the country here? Just, just to visit, like, you know, cause it's so different. Um, you know, you go to California, you go to 
New England, you go to Florida, you go to Texas. Um, there's so many, it's, it's crazy how different it is here in America, like different parts of the country. Yes, so it is. It's what's, so more of, what's your vibe? Like when you come over, what do you, what do you get excited for? I mean, there's pros and cons. I mean, Sturgis, Sturgis is like, I love Sturgis. I love that part of the country. Um, what is, what's your favorite kind of area here to visit? Yeah, well, Sturgis was cool. Our only stipulation when we went there with Kenny was that we had to be back at the house at 5 p.m. for cocktails. So there's no complaints about that. Uh, when we were out riding, how to get back to the house at five o'clock or you got, you got a fine or a penalty. Um, they, I love, uh, actually, I realized that Tyler lives in one of the nicest parts of the world that I, I've ever visited, which when I went to Sonoma Racetrack, I went up through that kind of little Italy area, which is really beautiful. Um, so we've been in San Francisco many times, love that area. And then crossing the bridge and going up towards that track was, was a lot of a really lovely part of the world. Um, Barber Motorsports, I love that. What a, what a well-kept little circuit that is in that surrounding area is lovely. Um, I love Monterey, Carmel. Uh, just love eating down there at the, you know, the key in, in, in Monterey there. That's, that's a special place to be. Have you been to uh, like New York City at all or anything in the North? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not I'm a fan of Philadelphia, not a, so. Not a big fan of, of New York. I've been a few times, but but I've, I've seen it and been there and done it. And, you know, I've, I'm probably not going to go back. I've, I've, I've been three, three, three or four times maybe. Uh, it's nice. It's a little bit like me going to London. I, you know, I'm not a big fan of London. It's nice if you're in there for one day. It's nice to get away again. And I get the same sort of feeling that New York City, because I, I live in the country, so it's quite a, it's quite a bit, it's really, really busy whenever you're, you're there. I do like other cities. You know, I've been to Chicago a few times and actually like Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way with New York city. It's uh, it's okay for like a couple hours, but then I'm ready to go home. Cause there's just nowhere to really like sit down and relax and everything's just a pain in the ass and get on a train <laughs> to go here. And I'm just like, this sucks. So I'm with you. Um, well, I was, I was, I was just, that, I would have said that, but I've, I've got to be careful what I say because I'm talking to an American artist, but yeah, you've summed that up pretty good, Corey. That's exactly what I think. <laughs> yeah, nah, we're pretty honest here, man. And I'm an, I'm a Northeast guy. I'm actually from like right outside Philadelphia is where I, is where I grew up and I live in Lancaster County, which is very Amish. Um, do you have Amish in, over there? Amish yeah, no, I, that, not really, but I've, I've been through <laughs> the, the Amish community. Of, uh, we've driven through it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess that's when we're down near, when's, where's your closest racetrack? There? Millville, uh, New Jersey Motorsports Park. Um, yeah, could be. Yeah. 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 yeah no, it's pretty, it's pretty Amish. Yeah. Where I'm at, like there's horse and buggies all over the place. So it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty crazy, but no, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I ask this to a lot of people. Um, the fans really like to hear the answer, but um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you've already answered it throughout the interview. But who are you picking in their prime, Marquez or Rossi? That's a really good question. You know, Marquez at the minute seems to be on another level and sometimes over the level. You know, we're. Rossi never seemed to be completely over the level like Marquez is. And that's a sign of the times, you know, as riders have had to, you know, ask more of themselves and risk more to, to be the best. Uh, Rossi in his prime, you know, during my, my career was the best. But then when, when Marquez has come along now, you know, you know that 
if the, if you put the two of them against each other now, then Marquez would come out tops. You know, his ride at the weekend at Coda was something very, very special. But it's not just Marquez anymore. You know, if you look, you've got to take into consideration all of these up and coming riders. You know what what they're capable of doing right now, and that's making Marquez's what seemed to be easy for him a, a number of years ago look increasingly more difficult to to do to be at the top and I think that's why he's put himself under so much pressure you know he risks everything every time he goes out you know it looks like he's he's really on the on the edge all of the time and I guess he doesn't believe that he's ever over the edge but sometimes things happen when you're when you're absolutely on the edge so I'd have to say Marquez uh, for you know for his probably because he's just so determined right now yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, you could go, you could go the talent versus racecraft versus hard work thing and so many different disciplines. And Marquez kind of resembles for me, like a James Stewart type deal. And Rossi's more of like a Ricky Carmichael, more efficient yeah. type of yeah. deal, but um, no, yeah, it's, it's, it's good insight. Uh, I got two more for you. Um, picking one guy because this, this MotoGP season has been freaking insane. Um, I, I don't remember this much parody at the front in a very long time. Um, it's actually really, really fun to follow this year. But who are you picking to win the title after, what are we, five rounds in, four or five rounds in? Who are you picking? Yeah, you, you thought you thought before the season that you could nearly pick that, didn't you? And now the season started, you know, that it's impossible to pick that. Uh, you, you, you might as well just go out on a limb and pick any one of them because they're all capable of winning. <laughs> And I'd have to say that, you know, how Anina Bassanini has started the season, it, it, that, that's a great way to start a campaign. Plus, he's on a 21 bike, which, you know, looks like the bike to be on. Uh, you know, Bagnaia, you'd have, you'd have picked as, as, a, as the one to come out strongest this year. Uh, and he hasn't. And then all of a sudden, you've got Rins back in, in the middle of it, you know, and I suppose like... A season ago, we were nearly writing Rins off, and now Rins has found his his mojo again. So, Mir and Rins definitely will be in the top three, four, and uh, you'd think that over the over the season that somehow Bagnaia is going to come back a little bit. Jack Miller should be there, but I think overall you've got to go with percentages at the moment, and the percentage is that that Bastianini's won two out of four. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that this, yeah, I guess that was kind of shaped up a little bit more this year. So, or this last weekend or whatever, but no, that's, yeah, it's, it's fun to watch and you got Fabio and just, you know, what, what's Mark going to do moving forward. Um, Yeah. yeah, I feel feel for Fabio because, you know, you know, whenever you look at Fabio on the the Yamaha, it doesn't look like he's going to be able to compete the whole way through the season. He's always going to be on the back foot, you know, it's yeah, going to be the one of the most exciting seasons, though. You know, when you now you got Mark back in injury free, hopefully he stays that way. He's got to be a contender as well. Yeah, no, it's it's exciting. Like it's it's cool because usually it was you know like a two or three guy race for the last decade or so, um, and now it's you know it's it's a lot of a lot of different guys that can compete. Um, and with that being said, I wanted to get some insight from you on this question as well. Um, so Americans in MotoGP, you know, it's, it's been kind of um, not a lot of guys over there until just the last few years. Um, we got 
a bunch of boys in the Moto2 championship right now. Who's going to be the next American winner in MotoGP? Well, I have to take my hat off to, to Bobia. What he's done, you know, to believe in himself and go over and throw his hat in the ring. He's done a great job. Uh, you know, as has Roberts. The, you know, and you, you've got to take out the, the age thing because I don't believe as riders get older that they lose anything. You know, I've, I've got to believe that being the oldest rider. <laughs> In, in, in any paddock that I visit, but I, you've got to say that um, that uh, Bobier's got to be the man who will he'll go. Yeah, he certainly will get. A, hopefully, will get a chance in MotoGP and, and and prove himself. You know, as will Joe. I think Joe, Joe's riding really really well as well. That's a super difficult class. It's a really competitive class to be in, and uh, it, it, I. I Funny enough, with Moto Two, you never can tell, and all of a sudden, you bring a Moto Two rider into Moto GP and he shines. So, let's hope that one or both of them get a, an opportunity to get to ride in Moto GP. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's still crazy to me. A guy like Jack Miller just went from Moto Three all the way to Moto GP and just is as successful as he is. It says a lot about the about the support classes. Like, are they support classes or are they just different, you know? So it's, um, it's actually really, really cool to kind of talk about and see, but man, like how, how supportive America is of their GP riders right now with, uh, Joe Roberts and Cam and Sean Dillon Kelly, like the first, I mean, Cameron got on the pole and it was like big, like we were, everyone was stoked. Everyone gets behind, behind him. So the first time those guys actually translate that over to a win, is just going to be insane. So yeah, definitely looking forward to it. Um, well, Jeremy, man, I, I kept you on a little bit longer, but I could, I could chat with you for a long time. A lot of really cool insight. Uh, hopefully I'll get to one of these races this year. I, uh, initially I, like I said, I was thinking about maybe gridding up on a bagger, but now I'm, you guys are reaching 170. I'm like, all right, I'm cool. Just spectating, but hopefully I can get out to a race and, and then check it out. I'm a big, Big, big fan. Uh, usually have Frankie Garcia as uh, one of my co-hosts here on the podcast. So we talk baggers quite a bit. He's an Indian bagger yeah. rider as well. <laughs> so I met I met Frankie at uh, Daytona. We got on we got on well. Lovely to meet him and Roland. And uh, yeah, next thing I'm I'm going to be on a on a hooligan, but it as well at some stage. Oh, let's go! Yeah, I love that. I love that. I'm a big hooligan guy too, to be honest. So. Um, yeah, and no, I just think what they're doing is really cool and it's really awesome to, to see you involved. And, uh, I was actually at the race when you won, man, it was, uh, I was there and it was, it was so, so cool to see and definitely appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. I know you're overseas right now and sometimes it's hard to lock in schedules with, you know, the time difference. So thanks again for, uh, being so cool and coming on and wish you best of luck the rest of the year. And hopefully I'll see you at a, at a race somewhere. Thanks. Yeah, I hope to catch up. Maybe see you at the next one if you make it. Cool. Well, take care and uh, we'll chat you soon. Thanks. Nice chatting to you. Cheers. Yep. See you, mate. Bye-bye. See ya. See ya. Jeremy McWilliam. Ah, that was awesome. Yeah, I, uh, dang, it's just when you're generally interested in what and who the guy is or what he does, it's it's easy to keep the pod going for, for a long time. But uh, so many, so many questions, more questions I've had. But uh, 
we'll drink a drink a brewski as uh Cruz calls it and we'll uh we'll chat here in the future definitely you know i want to just learn more about all that all that stuff man it's just really cool so not a lot else to talk about uh robbie bobby is is working he says so he couldn't get on the pod i was a little bummed because uh he's got a little bit of a little bit more insight with jeremy mcwilliam and would have been cool to have some of his his thoughts as well but man it might have been a two three hour show if we had more people on just to chat with him but yeah not a lot going on there was you know we talked about the moto america races a little bit moto gp um no supercross this weekend which was kind of weird really weird um i'm sure they they didn't mind that those riders they're they're pretty much at the grind every weekend for so long so no supercross no flat track really uh sammy howard had his race and uh we were supporting that as best we could trying to get the word out for Sammy. I was hoping to go down, but had some, it's just so hard for me during the the season to try and find time and find the help to do these outlaw races, um, to go down and to do that race. I didn't, I didn't have anybody to, uh, the guy that was going to come help me kind of bailed and didn't, you know, going down there and trying to race for that amount of money, doing it solo, right. You know, rushing around in your leather, changing gearing, making changes. It's, it's a really, uh, can be frustrating, uh, doing it on your own. Like I've done it for over a decade, uh, longer, 15 years, many a times. And it's just to the point where it, it, it can be challenging. And, um, but no, it was, you know, it was good to see him have a successful race. Good to see my buddy Trent pick up a win, uh, a lot of good riders down there. So, uh, hats off to Sammy for getting involved and, and promoting a race. And hopefully we can see more of, of that in the future. I'm, you know, really stoked to see these riders branch out and do more. Um, it's, it's really cool to see. And I'm a fan. Um, I not, uh, sorry, I 70 Odessa, Missouri next on the schedule. So we got one more weekend off and then we head to Missouri. I'm excited to race in that part of the country. Um, I've never been to I 70. It's a new racetrack. We'll talk about it more. Well, not new, but it's, kind of new if, if, if a track goes away for a long time gets paved and comes back i'm just going to claim it's new <laughs> um but we'll talk about that a little bit more on next week's show uh, i want to make sure we shout out these sponsors they make it happen if you can follow them on social media shoot them a thank you just for keeping this going without their support we just wouldn't be able to do this podcast anymore uh, mission foods bell power sports yamaha motorsports indian motorcycle Moto America, Dunlop Motorcycle Tires, and Roof Systems of Dallas, Texas, Sherry Stinchfield. Appreciate all they do. Uh, mad love to everybody for listening to the pod. Sub, uh, subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify. If you can, leave us a review um, on iTunes, even Facebook. That definitely helps us out a lot. We like to hear feedback and what we can do better. Um, also on iTunes, I've had a couple people ask about it, but our show has been published um, twice. So if you're on iTunes and you don't see the, if you're not getting updates on the podcasts on that platform on iTunes, go to Tank Slap and Podcast and just <clears throat> refollow, resubscribe. Um, we had some stuff that kind of like iTunes is tough sometimes. So we had to figure out a way to um, go through some of those issues. And it's not like you can call a help desk at iTunes and get an answer right away. So if you're, uh, if you're not getting the updates on that platform, um, resubscribe on iTunes, but yeah, Spotify and SoundCloud are working as well. Um, also I'm going to keep plugging it, but escape the Berg flat track race, uh, another race I'm promoting October 22nd, 
Lawrenceburg Speedway. Should have a website up here in a, in a couple of days. Been working on a new website for, for the promotion side of what I'm doing. But if you can go on the flat track uh, Facebook page, um, type in Escape the Berg Flat Track Race, the event page, give it a follow for more updates and info on what we got going there. Me and Andrew Butler working hard to put on a, a badass race there at the end of the year. So that's it. That's all I got. Appreciate you guys for tuning in as always. Stay tuned for more. We out.